today the sermons on 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 14. And for that reason, because it's a series of several verses, I'm going to read the entire text while we're on the title slide. So I'm reading from the ESV, 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. Paul wrote, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meeting the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would have to need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us your word, inspiring this, preserving it, giving us what we need so that we can learn and grow and identify the truth and error and be delivered from the darkness that is all around us in the world and yet be a witness to the world. Give us grace and wisdom as we think about your word and hear your word and apply it to our lives. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I read the whole thing. So we have the context. You have some outlines. Let's dig into what's going on here and see how we can apply it. <clears throat> Notice in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, remember the context. There was a man guilty of incest who they were, rather than dealing with the situation and bringing church discipline, they were literally puffed up. I talked about that in previous sermons. And this was outrageous, and Paul is writing to deal with it. He had written before. So we now we know there was a previous letter. We do not have that, but it certainly was something they had received, and they both knew the contents. And that will help us as we go through the rest of 1 Corinthians, because it uh, comes back again. Here's one thing that may have happened, and I'll, I'll mention it as we go along. It's very possible that they purposely uh, twisted, on purpose, what Paul said to make it look absurd so they wouldn't have to listen to it. Okay? So he was calling for them not to associate with the person who was committing this horrible sin, they were instead puffed up or boasting. It's very possible, and some of the scholars have pointed this out, that they twisted it, say, well, if we take Paul's argument, that means we just have to stay home. We can't go anywhere because this sort of thing is all over the world. So whether on purpose or not, the clarification is making a distinction between the church and the world. Today in the sermon, that's exactly what we want to understand. 
What is the church? What is the world? And what is the nature of judgment in these two realms and our witness to the world? The word associate here is a, a Greek word for mix, mignumi, and it has a double prefix. So it's a word that's rather rare, three times in the New Testament. One prefix, soon, and the other, ana. So you have soon, ana, mignumi. So I will give you, I think, a, a very literal translation. Thistleton, who is a Greek scholar, says, not to mix indiscriminately with. Not to mix indiscriminately with. So soon is with, on is up. So don't be mixed up with. That's the way of saying it. Don't be mixed up with. And one of our applications will come from Second Thessalonians 3 and verse 14 in context is another place this word is used in the New Testament. And of Dr. Fee, whose commentary was really life-changing for me when, I, uh, when it was first published in the mid-'80s because it made clarity of passages that the group I was with in the 70s had gotten wrong, and it really confused us. And I needed a better answer right from the Scripture. But Fee says this, <clears throat> Indeed, from Paul's point of view, the only way they can be a viable alternative to the world is for them to be in the world, but not of the world. That also is from John 17, 15 and 16, another one of our application points. To be that alternative, says Fee, however, they must discipline those wishing to belong to the fellowship, but who at the same time insist on continuing their former pagan practices. And so that is the issue, and it will come up throughout 1 Corinthians as we go forward. One issue after another has to do with the world, the church, what's allowed, what isn't. How do we get this right? They weren't getting it right. So the call was for church discipline. We preached on that. It'll come up again. If we look at church history, we have to come to the conclusion that the tendency is for the world to turn the church into the world. The ideas of the world become institutionalized and made religious, and then the church and the world are hardly different. We want to preserve the message, the integrity, and the um, rule of God's law through Christ in the hearts of Christians so that we're sanctified at the same time maintain a strong witness in the world and not become cloistered in a little group where nobody ever hears anything from us. Let's go to verse 10. Here is the clarification. Here's what he says. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers, idolaters, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So I have a point on the slide here. 
that, that I wrote, Christians live, work, and do commerce in the world as the arena of our witness. The arena of our witness. The Lord never intended when he sent forth the apostles with the Great Commission to go and be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts of the world, that the church would become, let's say, like the Qumran community, who is now known through excavations, who just kept to themselves. And to become a cloistered group that tried to stay away from the influence of the world by just sticking together and not going into the arena of public affairs with a witness for the gospel. I believe that, and I think there's some strong evidence for this. Several of the scholars read it this way, including um, uh, Rosner, Kiampa, Fee, and so on, some really solid scholars, that they may have taken his previous letter saying, deal with this, to an illogical extreme in order to discredit Paul. We know from First and Second Corinthians, they had a very low view of Paul. They were in a dispute with him. They didn't approve of the way he taught. They called him unimpressive and so on. They were saying, I'm of this one, I'm of that one. One was Paul, but he was just one. Peter's one. They even made it out like Jesus was just part of the sect. And that was their problem. They may have misconstrued it so that Paul is saying, just stick to your own self, quit your jobs, don't do commerce, don't see anybody who's not a Christian. And that's not what he said, so he's saying no to that one. You would need to go out of the world. We're not to go out of the world. We're to be witnesses and spokespersons for the gospel in the world. So we'll try to, today, understand how that works. So there's a list, uh, often in the theology, it's called a vice list that you find in the Bible. Here it is, the immoral, pornos is the Greek word. The greedy, that's an interesting word. I'll give you some definitions here. That word would be defined as one who wants more, a person covetous of something that others have, or a defrauder for gain. Now, um, we've had certain news items about defrauders for gain. Recently in the news, there's a guy who somehow billions of dollars that don't really exist, that came from somebody and they're gone through being uh, whatever he was. This has gone on throughout human history. There are people who were literally, I've seen them, heard about them, and run into them who claim to be some great business somebody and can make a lot of money for people and ends up they're defrauders. They're covetous. They're taking people's money. And this even happens in rather simple situations. A person I knew in the 70s, and it was really hard to get a job. 
when you went to look for a job, if you could even find one, it was a miracle. I remember not even one whole page of the one, one ads back then, before the Internet, had jobs after the oil embargo. Well, a guy had gotten one to work for a Christian man, a guy I knew. And he worked for a whole year. Then came time for taxes. He said, I would like my W-2 form or my W-4, whatever you get, so I can file. And said he didn't have one. He gave him a book on why you shouldn't pay your taxes. And so the guy didn't want to withhold because the withholding would require the employer to take out way more. And he didn't want to do that, so he gave him a book. And so here the guy I knew is stuck. He's on the hook for all the taxes that were never taken out of his pay. So there's somebody who says, just do it your way. I get your money. You pay your taxes. You're on the hook. So this sort of thing has gone on as long as there's been con artists and people who are defrauders, swindlers. A swindler is very similar. Uh, I, and it, it's a, the word here means rapacious, given to rapacity or extortion, an extortioner. Um, and the idle word, the word for idle actually has a, a part of it that means as serving like a priest in a temple. So all of this religious wickedness is already out in the world. The pagan religions, the con artists, the swindlers, the idolaters. And this sort of thing is typical, but it's not supposed to be in the church. And some people will use Christianity as their in in order to rob Christians of their money. Trust me, I'm a Christian. They say, God told me, and then they have some scheme. And beware, your money will go away, never to be seen again. Now, here's a statement, and we'll see. I believe this is exactly what is biblical, what Paul's telling us, and he He's the apostles writing the scripture. There is to be no cloistered Christian enclave where the church is isolated from the surrounding culture. That's the statement, and I think that's biblical. There's to be no cloistered Christian enclave. So the way to be sanctified isn't to gather with other sanctified people and minimize any contact with anybody else. That sort of thing is going on to this day. I was in a group that was sort of like that at one time, although there was more contact than some groups would have. There are people, I talked to witnesses, who had come from a group of, of supposed prophets who were told to have no contact with their family for years. Because the family might talk them out of being part of this cloistered group. And I had a father call me concerned about his son stuck in a group like that. And if you tried to get them out, that was proof that the father was evil and against Christ, even though he was a Christian. 
So that thing still goes on. Now, here's a slide you may have seen before. The next slide here is about the word in the Greek, cosmos. In its basic essence, cosmos would be an orderly system. But the theological diction of the New Testament gives the three main meanings of it. And getting those wrong will confuse us. So that's why I'm bringing it up here. World one, cosmos, the entire universe, the sum of all created being. And certainly a good testimony that God created the universe. Uh, Most of you probably saw the pictures that they got further out. They took the pictures of parts of the universe that weren't seen the way they are now. It's an amazing thing how the creator created this massive universe out of nothing. And it's evidence for the existence of God. So it can mean simply the sum of all created being. World two, cosmos, the abode of humanity, the theater of history, the inhabited world, the place of human affairs. Now that's the one that we need to get in our mind. Ordinary life, growing food, buying things, working a job, going about life. The theater of history, the place of human affairs. World three, cosmos. Fallen creation, the setting of salvation history, the human world that is hostile to God. Now, here's what happens that causes people to be confused and deceived. They confuse world two and world three. And they assume that ordinary life is something that's evil and wicked. We got to get out of it. And I remember what appealed to me when I was young um, because they were saying everything out there is somehow Babylon. If you have a job, you're in business Babylon. If you get a theological education, you're in religious Babylon. If you are doing just about anything, getting a degree in anything, you're in... uh, intellectual Babylon. Babylon was everywhere. And so the message is, get out of Babylon, and here's the alternative, cloistered. This is the kingdom of God. Now, in Sunday school, we're talking about the message of the kingdom, and it's very applicable. You don't enter the kingdom by getting out of Babylon, if you want to define it that way. We are in the world to preach the gospel so that the kingdom gains citizens as people are converted. It says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. But we're still in here. And so if you take anyone who knows the Lord and loves the Lord is redeemed and put them together, keep them isolated, the rest of the world is even darker. There's no light, no gospel there. And that's literally what happened during the dark ages in many ways. Even literacy took a hit. So it says in 1 John 2, 15 and 16, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
The lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. That is world three. Hostility to God. Those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who turn to Christ, are no longer living for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And they don't love the wicked, sinner, sinful world, but they love the gospel and love uh, people so much that they'll tell them the way out to forgiveness of sins. Okay? That's in the world, not of it. We have some more on that uh, in an application. But I publish this every once in a while, hoping that someone doesn't uh, get it wrong like I did at one time. And I think we can get this right if we really study. 1 Corinthians 5.11. Heading of the slide, church is not the world. And this is probably the battleground right now. The real battle is to define the church when it's been defined as an aspect of the world throughout most of church history. 1 Corinthians 5.11. But now I'm writing to you not to associate, remember that means mixed up with, anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a viler, drunkard or swindler, do not even eat with such a one. Now remember this. The problem in Corinth was incest, wicked immorality, and they were puffed up and boasting and doing nothing about it, probably because the guilty party was prominent and important and they didn't want to rock the boat. And so there goes the dispute. Deal with this. No, Paul's telling us we we can't even have our jobs. We can't do anything. Wasn't his point. And so this is an expanded vice list, and it gives us not a comprehensive list of everything that's sinful, but what sin looks like. Other lists have other things in it. The idea is, and I mentioned this last week, God delivers us from our enemies, not our friends. Friendship with the world is hostility to God. All Christians are not yet perfected, and many times we have things in our life that we want gone. I know I have, and God has delivered me from things that I'm so glad are gone, and there's always something else. But we want God to change us. And when you take what needs to change and put a banner on it and say, this is really great. Look at this. I'm puffed up. How are you going to get delivered? If we brag about what God puts on this list, look at me. I'm a Christian. I just cheated all these people out of their money. What? Now, if this is unknown, God will deal with it, and those who cry out to God will be set free. So the issues are boundaries and community identity. Boundaries and community identity. Is the church a congregation 
called together out of darkness into the light, searching the scriptures, praying for one another, hungering for God's word, asking God to change us, asking God to give us a bold witness, and is clearly not the world. Or is the church a religious social institution that looks as much like the world as possible, only with a respectable face, so that we have no real message. And why would that be? Because the institutions of Christendom, in order to self-perpetuate and grow and pay the bills and become even bigger, has to be a religious subset of the world. Because narrow is the gate and narrow is the path that leads to eternal life. And the message of the cross, Christ crucified, is an offense to the Jews, foolishness to the Greek, Greeks, but to those who are being saved is the power of God. If we continue to proclaim the, what Jesus taught, what the apostle, his apostles are teaching here, and pray together that God would keep us from this stuff and set us free from what we need to be set free from. If we do that, then people will want to join when they're converted or they'll come to hear the gospel. And who knows when the Lord will convert. But we can't change the message of the church to please the wicked world. And we can't teach doctrines that say, well, the reader determines the meaning. People have been reading the Bible for centuries, and nobody knows for sure what it means. So therefore, ignorance is bliss. Let's do whatever we want. No, it's not confused. It's not as unclear as they say. And here's another one. Have you heard this? No one has all the truth. I've heard that. So the implication was sort of like the Corinthians to Paul. Okay, I guess we got to go out of the world. Telling us to deal with this guy. Now we got to go out of the world. Taking it to an extreme. So if you don't have all the truth, then you can't tell me anything. So since you're not omniscient, be silent. Well, they don't say that. They say, no one has all the truth, so let's give up. I call that the little engine that couldn't. I think I can't. I think I can't. I know I can't. So being how I can't, I don't know what it means. It's too opaque. Can't know what God said. We'll just teach self-esteem. Or how to have better lives through religion. The church is not the world. It's a congregation scattered all over the world, the church universal of the redeemed. One thing you know is true. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible. When the word of God is clearly taught, those who are born of the Spirit will respond and there will be amen or joy or hope because the word of God sanctifies us. We have that in one of our applications. So the reviler is somebody verbally abusive, a scoffer, a slanderer, and so on. Dr. Gardner says 
The verb to slander or scoff was encountered in 4.12. Paul responded to those who scoffed at him with kindly words. Clearly, Paul has in mind another vice that is known with a commonplace in Corinth. In other words, what happened was that if they scoffed at him, he responded with kindly words. They curse, we bless. They scoff, we tell them kind things. So we go with our message, which is forgiveness of sins, redemption, hope, eternal life, repentance from dead works, to serve the living God. That's what we are. And if we're not in the world at all, they'll never hear it. And about the drunkard, we see that that was a problem right in Corinth. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty one. this is the Lord's Supper for an eating. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. This particular word, I, as you know, God delivered me from addiction 12 years ago. And I thank God for being free. This was about similar thing, but it would be the partying, like the frat party, only it keeps going on. So they're having the Lord's Supper, and here, drunken people having a crazy party, and they're supposed to be celebrating what God did for them through the Lord's Supper. It's, it's, just, it's what happened. It's really bad. Dr. Gardner says this, pagan feasts were noted for their orgy-like atmospheres. And drunkenness and immorality would go hand-in-hand, hand, as they often do today. Some approach the supper in the same way that they approach pagan temple feasts in their former life. Christian worship isn't a celebration of wantonness, but it is a remembrance of what God did for us. Let's go to the next slide. Proper realms of judgment. This will be, by the way, the theme of chapter 6. What sort of judgment is valid? Who judges? And in what realm of judgment? And what's appropriate and what isn't? 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13. For For what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's a rhetorical question. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Another rhetorical question. God judges those outside. Then a statement, purge the evil person from among you. What we affirm as valid inside the congregation is our realm of responsibility. That's what Paul's saying. That these things happen in the world is as it's always been. God judges the world. We're supposed to take care of the church. That's the the realms of judgment. God judges those outside. The church must take action to judge inside. Let me also just point out a pitfall we got to watch out for. I know I definitely do. It is so gratifying to judge the world. We love that role. Look at how wicked the world is. In fact, I heard a Pentecostal preacher say when I was in Bible college, if you really want to fire up the crowd, 
preach against the wicked people in Hollywood. And, oh, yeah. But see, that may get an applause line or sound something we could be excited about, but it's our job to help the church be the church and be light in a dark place and have a message. And um, it's hard enough. You know how hard it is to be a Christian and not act like the world? It's very hard. Anybody, it took me a long time to be sanctified at a boat landing. (laughs) Honestly, I just get so annoyed with people who don't know how to launch their boat. Well, I finally repented of that and said, Lord, if I can be nice to everybody at the boat landing, I'll be a victorious Christian. (laughs) It's been pretty good. I had a setback a couple years ago. But the point is we have our things that are a pet peeve. But these are serious issues, and we want to have the church have integrity as we help one another live lives that are pleasing to God. Dr. Fee said something, again, this is his 2014 republic. He uh, expanded and republished his commentary, second edition, 2014. Let me cite that. Here's what he says. This passage presents more than its share of difficulties for believers in the 21st century. How does one reconcile these last words, verses 12 to 13, with the teaching of Jesus, Matthew 7, 1 through 5? Eric had an excellent sermon on that. And you can go look it up on gdf.church. He talked about judge not. Remember when he preached on that? It was very well done. And for a lot of people who aren't Christians, that's their favorite word, their favorite verse. Judge not. We're going to be the way we are. And so uh, this is nuanced, and we need to understand what realm of judgment we should be making. P continues. The Pauline principle is simple. Free association outside the church, precisely because God not the church judges those on the outside, but strict discipline within the church because in its free association with the world, it may not take on the character of the world in which it freely lives. So this is our calling, very clear, to be in the world, but not of the world. And if you think that's simple, it's not. It's the battle we all have every day. And we always need wisdom. James is a good book to digest, the book of James. How do we have wisdom? How can I be a witness and honor the gospel and honor Christ and be in a really, really bad situation where I can't stand what's going on? And that happens to believers, it always has. You know, when we pray for wisdom, it doesn't mean that a lightning bolt comes and, no, do this and don't do that. I'll tell you what does happen. We're humbling ourselves even in the act of saying we need wisdom, admitting we don't know. It is difficult. Lead me not into temptation 
but deliver me from the evil one. And in our willingness to admit we need help to God, grace comes in ways that we didn't even expect. And it's very uh, true. And God gives us what we need when we need it at the time we need it. Fee says this, and I, I have to say amen to his point. He says, on the one hand, are those who advocate the strictest separation from the world, but who allow many of the sins Paul condemns, verses 10 and 11, to thrive in their midst, that is greed, slander. On the other hand, says he, some who adopt the Corinthian attitude almost totally, usually on the basis that all are sinners after all, Thus they live in the world as those who would also be of the world. So that the distinction, says he, between those inside and those outside are razor thin, if they exist at all. In such cases, the church ends up judging neither those inside or those nor those outside. That is, I share these Citations for scholars for a couple reasons. Number one, I believe they're accurate if I, or I wouldn't share it. Number two, the last thing we want is to promote, promote an anti-scholarship attitude. Many have rightly said that evangelicalism in America has an anti-scholastic bias, meaning keep everybody dumb. Don't give them the tools. That's wrong. Scholarship is no threat. Because there are liberal scholars doesn't mean there aren't solid conservative scholars who can help us understand the text. And I think that's a good point. How is it that we can be in the world and not of the world? If we erase all the distinctions, there's no such thing as church that's even meaningful. If we cloister and have no interaction with anybody, we have no witness. That is the line that's being explained here, and there's going to be more special exact issues came up in Corinth that are going to help us as we go on. Last time we talked about become what you are. The, the imperative that's grounded in the indicative. Here's my statement, then we'll go to the Fs. The only way any of what is revealed here can be lived and applied is when we have the proper eschatological perspective. Let me explain that. Part of the problem is ruling out eternity. If it doesn't work in the here and now the way we want it to, then we ditch it and go find something else. The Bible isn't saying that if we exclude forgiveness of sins, Redemption, eternity, future judgment, rewards for the righteous, degrees of punishment, there are there for the wicked. If we exclude all that, this is all a workable thing, and people will be better off if they're Christian. No, eternity matters. The end time prophecies matter. We can better live as loving, forgiving people if we realize that we already have eternal life, we already have the promises of God, 
And we need to be patient with those who maybe they never believe. Maybe they will. We don't know. But we were like them. And we need to remember that we're here so that others can have forgiveness and eternal life. We can't throw away eschatology and come up with a good answer. Just two applications today. Number one, the church must take action to continue to be a godly witness in the wicked world. Let me just say this before we get to the text we're going to cover. It's not getting easier. Do you you notice that? It's not getting easier. Have we ever thought that the culture is somehow supporting biblical Christianity? It's getting harder to think that all the time. The contrast is even greater. That's, That's a bad thing in one sense, good thing in another. The light is more light. As we preach the gospel, God will use that. That happened in the 70s. There were a lot of people that came to Christ when things got their worst. The first application will be from 2 Thessalonians. The second, the church is not a cloistered community, but is in the world, loving of it. Let's look at some other passages that will give fuller explanation to what we've learned and what Paul taught us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, the other time that word associate mixed together with is found in the New Testament is Second Thessalonians 3, 14 and 15. Turn in your Bible to 2 Thessalonians 3, 11. We've got to have the context. 2 Thessalonians 3, 11. I'll read, starting with verse 11. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Verse 12. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Verse 13. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Context, Christians are saying, maybe they over-realize eschatology. It doesn't matter anyhow. We're not going to do anything. Somebody else has to take care of us. People that are otherwise able-bodied. That's rebuked there. So that was the problem there. Undisciplined, unmotivated, inactive, And that's not good. Now let's go to verse 14 and 15. But if anyone does not obey our message through this letter, take note not to associate with him in order that he may be put to shame. But do not consider him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now this gives us more insight into what valid discipline is all about. Okay, knowing that each one of us who knows Christ has things that we need to be free from that are a major battle, and they don't go away easily. And as we 
or seeing somebody else's problem or weakness, we're remembering that this sort of church discipline is given with a redemptive focus. Even the really bad situation in Corinth, Paul had a redemptive focus that the person would be saved. And do not consider him as an enemy, admonish him as a brother. God knows the heart. There may be people who appear to be Christian, they're not. But we don't know that. As far as we know, they're a brother or sister in Christ. Now, when church discipline comes, that's when we find out. If someone says nuts to this, I'd rather just be out here in the world and do what I do, go away, then we know they weren't really a brother. But a brother will be glad to be corrected and, and be free from whatever the bondage was. So this discipline is intended to bring change. Now, notice that he may be put to shame. The ancient world, and particularly the Semitic world, and the world of the Gospels had an honor-shame culture. There were some things to be avoided, and shame was worse than just about anything. And that comes out, for example, in the prodigal son parable, the older brother, the younger brother, the father, the honor-shame. This is throughout the Gospels. It's also true in the ancient Rome in many ways. And so to be shamed would be something that everyone wanted to avoid. Now, the purpose of being shamed is not that someone could say, I'm holier than thou, but that the person would see whatever the action was. In this case, it was being undisciplined busybody uh, who leached off others. In that case... It's to motivate. Wait a second. I don't want to live in this shame. I don't think this is good. This isn't helping me. This isn't helping my family. I need to be changed. And that will be God's way of bringing about change, getting the, getting action so that we live out what we believe. So that was a very powerful motivator. Now, I might say uh, it's shocking to look around Whatever may be ultimately shameful, people put it out on a shingle and say, great. There isn't anything that we won't say is good. So there is as if, you know the saying, they have no shame. Learning how to blush isn't bad. You know, um, in the Old Testament, there's a lament. My people have forgotten how to blush. And may God help us to not want to be like the world, but to be in the world and not of it. And I'm going to go to the next slide, and then let's talk about how God does sanctify. Sadly, I think too many evangelicals have given up on the idea that Bible teaching and application will sanctify. Why anybody would think that? is almost shocking to me, but many do. Many do. And many people have more faith in human wisdom than they do in the power of God to use his word to change us. Human wisdom won't really change us. God's word will. 
Now, this is Jesus' high priestly prayer. It was mentioned by one of the scholars as a cross-reference, and it's the one I immediately thought of, John 17, 15 to 17. Jesus is praying for the disciples to the Father. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Look at the last phrase there. I have it highlighted in blue. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The need that Christians have for sanctification is that we would be prayed for. Jesus intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us, according to Romans 8. Jesus intercedes for us. We have access to the throne of grace. And when we identify what needs to change by God's grace, we know that he has the power as the word of God penetrates our minds. And we think about it. I want this to be different. Lord, be merciful to me. Uh, Help me. That's not a bad prayer. When you're so sick, you can't do anything else. and You're so weak, you can hardly talk. You can say, Lord, help me. God knows the heart. He cares about us. He wants us to find the grace we need. We don't need uh, human wisdom. We need the power of God through the word. That's why when we preach the word of God with clarity, there comes with that the belief that God's going to change our lives. We're part of the family of God. Notice, keep them from the evil one. Now, I'll give you some cross-references to think about here, but if we're not comforted by the fact that Jesus prays for us, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and groanings too deep for words, that he cares for us. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. That we're part of the family of God. That we have eternal promises. And that he has given us his name. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That God will work powerfully even in me and you and any one of us to bring honor to his name. How can that be? We have too small of a belief in the power of God. He can change us, and he will. And we're not lacking information. We're lacking belief in the promises of God. And that's why we need to look at these passages. It says in 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are of God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Let me cite this, John 15, 26, 27. John 15, 26, 27. Here's a promise. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. Many have pointed out rightly, this shows the deity of the Holy Spirit masculine pronoun with a neuter word. 
he will testify about me. How do you know? Many people say, I'm prophesying in the name of Jesus. I'm teaching in the name of Jesus. I'm saying Jesus is Lord. But what are the details? What Christ are they talking about? The Holy Spirit causes those who love the Lord to testify about the truth about Christ. And you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. His apostles testify. Now, how can any of this be true for anybody? First of all, maybe you're hearing this and you're not sure that you're a Christian or maybe you've never been a Christian. Let me explain the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the very creator of the universe. If you saw those pictures of the complexity of the universe that they can now take from outer space, if you aren't in awe of the power and majesty of God to make this universe, and it's there, and there's an orderliness to it despite the fall, and that was all created out of nothing. It's not eternal. God's eternal. So the very creator, God the Son, came into our world, born of a virgin, did live a perfect, sinless life, the only one who did, who predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and was so crucified and then also raised before witnesses, whose blood was shed to pay the penalty for sins. He died for sins, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. The Bible says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent means turn from serving self, Satan, the world, every one of the things that we talked about here, it's all out there. Turn to Christ and serve him by his grace. And what we all need is forgiveness of sins, release from sins. The gift of God is eternal life. It doesn't mean your best life now. It means promise that I'll never leave you or forsake you, Jesus said. We have eternal life. We'll be with him forever. Dear ones, may God cause each of us to be a witness for him while we're still in this world. And we need his grace to do that. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness that we are allowed to look into these things which are so amazing. We know you inspired them by your Holy Spirit, through your very word. May we take them seriously and know that you're going to use these things. May people believe even today and turn to you for forgiveness of sin. And Lord, give us grace to overcome those things that would just drag us into the world but keep us as witnesses in the world but not of it help us lord we need your help thank you lord in jesus name amen